pull out your outline and your verse sheet and your Bible. We're going to jump into the book of James. If this is your first week with us in this summer study, great. We're glad you're here. If you've been all three weeks, that's great. We know people are in and out of town, and so we are glad for you to be here whenever you're here to remind us all kind of where we've been and catch those of you who are with us for the first time. We are on a journey this summer to answer the questions that are listed up here on our screen. Anything from how do I experience victory to what does holiness look like? What is the wisest way to think and act in certain situations? How can I experience freedom? We're in the process of answering these questions and then living them out as we experience them in our lives. I want to remind us, I told you I was going to do this every week, because it is essential for us to remember that one paragraph that is at the top of your outline, and it's this. James is not a book about how to become a Christian. We do that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and James is writing to a group of Christians. However, James is a book about how to live a life of faith once you are a Christian. Therefore, James is a book meant to be lived, and it will require work. None of us is going to get any of these answers to any of these questions instantaneously. We're going to have to practice and live out these things in our lives that we learned from James. And at the bottom of your outline, there's a phrase that says, For this to matter, I must. And so whatever it is that the Spirit teaches you through the Word tonight that you need to work on, you just make your own notes down there about those things that you need to practice and put in your lives. And we always have to remember that our actions, what James is calling us to do, is in response to who God is and what God has done for us. And I want to expound upon that a little more and explain to you kind of how we're going to do tonight. I don't know about you, but my car needs checkups. It, I take it in whenever the manual says to take it in to get the oil changed and to get all the things on the car checked. And I do that for a variety of reasons. One, I want to make sure, have them check it over and make sure there's nothing disastrously wrong that might cause a huge disaster. I want to make sure that if there's something small wrong that they fix it while it's small, before it gets huge. I mean, overall, I just want my car to run well and my car to run better, so I go do this checkup. We're going to look at some things tonight, and I want you to look at it in the form kind of of a spiritual checkup. We have a lot of verses to run through, and we're going to understand what James says, and then I want you, there's boxes on your outline, for you to go home and kind of do a spiritual checkup. So that you can note maybe something big that was there that's getting ready to cause a disaster that you can work on. Maybe there's something small that before it gets huge, it'd be good if you fixed it. There are things that you need to and I need to go home and work on so that we can experience the answers to these questions which we're on this quest for. And as a reminder, because the things in this passage, at least for me, were particularly convicting, and so I want to remind us all of a few things. You are at a church and hearing from a teacher who believes that the Bible is God's word and that everything in it is true. And if you believe that, then you know that I am a sinner because the Bible tells you that we're all sinners. So you know I'm a sinner. God knows I'm a sinner. I know that this whole process that I'm getting ready to walk through with all of us is going to point out sins in our lives. So I'm just going to clear it up for all of us. We're all sinners, and we all know it. And 
So there's no reason to be coming up in your head as we walk through these things, well, I'm not that bad, or I'm better than so-and-so, or to feel overly guilty. God already knows that you're messing up in these areas. He already knows that I am. We're not loved because of what we do right. We're loved because of Jesus. We're holy and acceptable before God because Jesus gave us his righteousness. And I'm reminding you of these things because for me, this passage is so penetrating and almost nauseates me at times as I look at myself. And if we are not confident in God's love, reminded that we are right with him because of Jesus, I don't think we're going to be willing to let God point out what we need to work on. Because if we think we have to be good enough for God to love us, we're not going to be honest about the sin that's there. We're not going to respond rightly to it. We're not going to experience freedom, joy, victory, holiness, all of that, if we aren't foundational. You're not going to be any more or less loved tonight than you were when you walk in. If you are a believer in Christ, you are loved right with God, and God wants to, because he loves you, open up our lives and show us some things that we need to work on so we can be more holy and so that we can experience more freedom and joy. So I just want to remind you of that and just kind of lay all that on the table as we start in on the book of James. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 2, but I've told you before that there are a few things that are themes through the book of James. And one of those is wealth. And so we are going to take a look at James's view on wealth. We're going to do that by pulling in two passages, one we've kind of already seen and one that's coming. So I'm going to read through James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to make some observations. Starting in James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What that means is let the poor Christian be excited that even though he doesn't have any money, he can exalt because he's been given something more valuable than money. He's been given Christ and a relationship with him. So this one who is poor, even though most people would say they need to be humbled, he can be excited and exalt because he has Jesus. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now read James chapter 5 with me. It's a pretty intense passage. And James is talking about, in this passage, rich people that do not know Christ and how they're misusing their money, but they're things that we can learn as well. There's very strong language here. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your yards, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So let's kind of walk back through these verses that we just read. Again, kind of intense. But let's walk back through and learn some key things about wealth that James wants us to learn. 
The first one I already alluded to in James chapter 1 as we talked about this lowly brother, the poor Christian having Christ, and that is that having Jesus is immensely more valuable than having wealth. Having Jesus is immensely more valuable than having wealth. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. And I've tried as much as I can, as you'll watch this, to use the actual words that James uses. So we're seeing very clearly how James is drawing the line. I want you to see that these statements I've made are pulled as much as I can from the words James has used. For example, look with me in verses 2 and 3 for what I have said is the second one. Wealth will rot and corrode. It is temporary. Listen to verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted your garments and are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, very clearly we see that wealth will rot and corrode. It is temporary. Moving on. Misused wealth brings dire consequences. You know what I've said? Misused wealth. Money in and of itself isn't wrong, but misused wealth has dire consequences. Let's read verses 1 and verses 3 again, and we can see this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Clearly, misusing wealth is not a small thing. Misusing wealth has dire consequences. Okay, let's look at the next one. Well, I kind of want to know, what is this misuse of wealth? Certainly, I don't want to do it, so I'd like to know what it is so I can avoid it. It includes at least these things that we'll read in verses 4 and 5. Misuse wealth includes mistreating laborers through fraud and living on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Look for some of these words in this description of verses 4 and 5. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mows your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That right there is an incredibly penetrating phrase. Remember, saved by grace, Jesus loves you. (laughs) It's not going to change when you walk out the door. But let God, I'm reminding you of that because I want you to let God show you where you're falling short there because we all do. So hold hold both truths with you. Fully loved and valued by Christ. Let God convict you because remember what we've been building up to is God's given us his word and wants to point out these things. Why? so we can have freedom and victory and know him more and honor him. Remember that his purpose is good in this. So let the Spirit teach you. Um, The final thing, and we're going to talk about this even a little bit more next week, wealth and what you do or don't do with it is a heart issue. Verse 5 talks about you fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. What is going on with our wealth is is coming out of a heart issue. So here are some questions that I would love for you to ask yourself and let God teach you as a part of this spiritual diagnostic. The first one is, does your heart value Jesus or wealth more? And here are some questions to kind of help you get to the heart of that. How do you feel about God when you do not get an item that you want? How do you feel about God when you don't get something you want? Do you value people or things more? 
Are you depending on God or your 401k for your future? Not that it's bad to save, it's wise to save, but I tend to, that's somewhere I fall short that God's dealing with me on, I tend to place my security in my bank account rather than, than Christ. That's somewhere I, I really wrestle. The next question, are you spending too much on luxury or on yourself? Are you treating your employees or people you pay fairly? Are you using your wealth as a means to feel good about yourself and fit in with certain people? Why is wealth so important to you? I encourage you to go home and kind of spend some time talking to the Lord. Maybe he'll show you something in your spiritual checkup that's massive that you need to do some work on. That's fine. Maybe he's going to show you something that's kind of tiny. Better to fix it while it's small before it gets big. Those are some questions just to help you diagnose where you struggle in this area because we all do. Now, when we find out that we struggle in that area, you notice I said when, not if, when God shows you something that you struggle with in that area, what is our response to that so that we can experience story and freedom, walk with Christ closer, again, live out the realities we're looking for in the book of James? How do we respond? Well, first, meditate on all the characteristics of God we've been finding in the book of James. Go back to Christ and who he is so that you will be able to consider all you have in Jesus and how much better he is than money. How silly is it for me that I place my security in my bank account when the Son of God came to die on a cross and was raised from the dead to secure my place in heaven? Like, how silly is that? I mean, it just it's silly that I would place my security in something that's going to rot and corrode versus something that's not. Like, that's just silly at me. So what is it about your wealth? What are you trying to look for or find in it that you feel like it's giving you fitting in with certain people, comfort and edge of coolness, security? What is it that you look at wealth and try to get out of it that would make far more sense to find in Christ? So begin to kind of whatever you find your heart longing for in wealth, look for that in Christ and find it there. And then the short answer is stop buying things and give more. I mean, that's a pretty practical application. But, um, again, like I said, God loves us enough, James loves us enough to tell us the truth so that we don't have a crazy car crash and destroy our lives and experience dire consequences. He wants us to have freedom, to be able to not be bound by wealth. And so he was kind enough to be very direct with us about wealth and its place. In and of itself, not bad as a replacement for Christ or means to use other people, not so good. So, as if that wasn't convicting enough, we're going to move on to something that to me was even more convicting than the wealth part. So, we're going to move on and we're going to talk, there were some questions at your table about how we treat people. And James is going to be real direct with us about what it is that he wants us to know and how we're supposed to respond. So, I'm going to start off by reading verses 1 through 6, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, 
or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the one who blasphemes the honorable name by which you are called? Okay, James is giving us a command. In essence, he's saying, don't show partiality to people with money or, may I say, anything else by their, how they dress or where they work or their level of coolness or their place in society or their place in government or their place of power or whatever it is. We're not supposed to look at people through that lens. Well, why is this such a big deal? James is merciful enough to give us a little bit of an insight into why that's such a big deal. Okay, let's walk back through, again, walk back through the text, and I want you to see why it's such a big deal that we not look at people through this lens of partiality, which we do, but that we respond with love instead. Okay, the first one is this. Partiality is incompatible with our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In verse 1, Jesus is described as the Lord of glory. And I read this quote this week, and I thought this was so fabulous. It says, in light of Christ's divine glory, I mean, think about his glory. It is foolish, foolish to show favoritism based on inferior levels of human glory. Jesus, in as glorious as he is, doesn't come down and make distinctions. It's just incompatible that with the Lord of glory and who he is, that we would do that. It just, I mean, it really is kind of illogical. It just doesn't make sense. The second thing, our distinctions and partiality come from a judgmental evil mind and heart. Again, if James hadn't written those words, I probably would not have written them down there. I would have come up with a more politically correct way to say it's not nice. But he did not say that. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And if I'm honest, which I clarified when we started off that I was a sinner, and if you believe the Bible, you already knew that anyway, we all do this in some form or fashion. We treat people differently based on whatever it is we're trying to use or get out of them or whatever I'm wanting. Influence, power, acceptance, whatever it is, we do this. And it was so, as I thought about it, I'm like, man, I don't even hardly know what it would be like to go five minutes without beginning to think like that. You know, just measuring the angle or assessing the situation. I, I, I mean, it's just, it's, e- it's evil. It's sin. Praise Jesus, saved by grace. God wants me to know so I can experience freedom. But it's a big deal. The third reason. God has a heart for the poor and has chosen many who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Listen to verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He has given to those who we see as having less in some form, chosen to give them his name and his kingdom. How silly of us to treat them with any sort of distinction when he does not do that. The next one. Many rich in the world oppress Christians, drag them into court, 
and blaspheme Christianity. Listen to this. This is so true. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called, meaning the name Christian? I mean, I'm sure we can all think of examples of people with some sort of clout, be it money or some other thing. If you roll through your minds of comments you've read on a news report or seen on a, in the media or on a movie how the Christian has been portrayed, how silly that we treat those with fame as special. No, we shouldn't treat them less special either, but how silly that we value fame so significantly in light of what a lot, not all, of them have to say about Jesus. Pretty convicting. Okay, so if we're not supposed to treat people with partiality, how are we supposed to treat them? Let's read verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, as if the first eight verses weren't enough to convince you that we shouldn't be partial, he continues right on. So, I will continue along with him to point out why it is such a big deal that we work on this. Partiality is the opposite of love as held in the greatest commandment. Verse 8 quotes the scriptures where Jesus has said we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. Impartiality, treating people with distinction, is, is not based on love. It is anti-the greatest commandment that Christ has given to us. What else? Again, this is so intense. Partiality is sin and causes us to break the whole law. It's not just a small little deal. In verses 9 through 11, what does he compare it to? Let's look back. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And in verse 11, he said that we're committing sin if we treat people partially. Verse 11, he compares it to what? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He's comparing it here to adultery and murder and saying if you break one of the laws, you've broken all of them. You break the whole law. Partiality is not a small thing from God's perspective. It's a big deal. We talked about this last week a lot, so I won't go into it a lot, but partiality steals our liberty and it's inconsistent with Christianity. In verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. We have been set free, not because of anything we've done. We weren't smarter or more intelligent or more kind or more wise or more giving than anyone else. God mercifully reached down and saved me just out of mercy. How silly of me, how sad and nauseating of me 
that I would not, as one given so much, and given so much liberty, how nauseating that I would not turn around and give that back to someone else. So sad. Um, The final one, mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise God. His mercy came down and reached us and triumphed over our judgment. And because we've been talking about, in verse 12, it talks about that we're supposed to speak and act as those who are to be judged that way. Uh, I believe the correct interpretation of verse 13, which says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this will transition into the next verses. I believe that our merciful actions demonstrate our salvation and thus show that we will be spared judgment. That as I speak and act as one who's been judged by the law of liberty, as I am merciful with other people, it demonstrates that I have been given mercy by God and that I will be spared judgment because of his mercy. It's a demonstration of his character and shows what that is. So, aren't you glad you came to the Bible study? (laughs) Yes, because... Why wait till it becomes a big deal? Or if it is a big deal, let's not let it become a bigger deal. We want to have the answers to these questions. And praise God, he's willing to be honest with us instead of just smile at it and say, oh, it's not that big a deal. At least it's not whatever. At least you're better than so-and-so. Sometimes the truth hurts a little or a lot. But I'd rather have the truth. I'd rather you tell me that my engine is getting ready to blow in three miles rather than let me leave with my car and have a crazy, fiery blowout and run into other people and create a crash. Like, I don't necessarily like the news, but I'd much rather know. So this is one of those lessons. We'd much rather know so that we can experience more of Christ than walk on blinded to it. So here are our questions for this. In what areas is partiality an issue for you? You note that I did not ask, is partiality an issue for you? Because... The answer for all of us is yes. In what areas or and with which people, general or specific, a type of people, a specific person, in what areas is partiality an issue for you and with which people, general or specific, is it an issue? And what are you trying to achieve through your partiality? What do you feel like you're accomplishing? And again, we're going to talk more about the heart last week, but just like with wealth, why would we do that? So we look better, have influence, have power. Like, there's something behind it. So what is it that's motivating that? And then our response is to love people. I mean, that was James's pretty simple answer. Don't treat people with distinctions, just love them. See people through God's eyes, which the Lord of glory came and chose not to make the petty distinctions we make. Let's begin to see through his eyes, which... Part of me, as I've thought about this week, man, that is such, as I think about the depth to which my partiality can go, I mean, that's, that's a lot of work there, because you, we encounter people all the time, wanting to see people through God's eyes, and then find in Christ what we're valuing through our partiality. Okay, deep breath, I know that's a lot, we'll take a little 30 minute time out, and you can breathe. <laughs> I will say, anyone go watch the um, Mavs parade today? Anyone go over to Dallas? You watch it? No? Sorry. I'm telling this because last week, last Thursday, if you were here, you know, I told you that you didn't need to worry about rushing out and rushing home to catch the Mavs game because it was all going to be decided in the last three minutes. 
Well, if I would have had all of your text messages and emailed, I would have emailed you because at three minutes left in the game, tied. It was totally tied. And I was like, I told them, Bible study, <laughs> then the maths game. Didn't matter if you saw the first part, it's going to be tied and we're going to do the last three minutes. So, anyway, I'm just saying, but go Mavs. It was awesome. Okay, but we're not quite done yet. So, um, this one is an interesting passage that I think is often mistaught and often can be very confusing. And so I'm very excited that we can talk about it because I think as we look at it, you are going to see how clearly it lines up with everything James has been telling us, and it's not nearly as confusing as it's going to appear on first glance. Let's go. All right. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You know, the age-old argument, are we saved by faith in Christ or are we saved by what we do? Can we earn our way in? And I've been very adamant every week with saved by faith through grace for any of a thousand reasons, one of which is I could never keep the whole law, so I'm really glad I'm not saved that way because none of us would be saved. So, for a lot of reasons, saved by faith through grace. So James is talking here, but he says, what good is your faith if it hasn't changed anything in your life? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So is he saying we need both? Is he saying, you have faith to cover the parts you don't get right, but works to cover the part you do? Verse 18, but someone will, fa- will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. Here's a key phrase. And I will show you my faith. He's showing his faith by his works. Okay, so there appears to be a kind of faith that demonstrates itself in works, which James is a fan of, and a kind of faith which doesn't demonstrate itself in works, in any sort of kindness, in any sort of giving. Well, what kind of faith is that? Let's read the next verse, verse 19. You believe that God is one. All right, they have some correct mental knowledge, mental assent to some things about God. Great, you do well. However, even the demons believe and shudder. So there's a type of faith, a type of belief, Demons, in a sense, have a pretty good theology. There's no love. There's no commitment. Their heart and their life has not been changed. They have not put their trust in Christ. There's a mental assent to some facts about God. But there's not the kind of faith, the love, the trust, the commitment that manifests itself in good works. Do you see the difference? According to James, this is on your outline, genuine faith produces a changed life. Something happens. And then there's a difference between a mental assent, a mental acknowledgement of some facts, but that is different from the faith that's the trust, the commitment, the action that follows it. Now, he's going to give us two examples. Again, it's going to appear confusing, but let's look at the examples. Verse 21, or verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that Faith apart from works is useless. Was it not Abraham, Ham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Okay, James is referring to two instances from Abraham's life. Turn your page over, and I want to show you what they are. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham, tells him some things he wants him to do, makes some promises. In Genesis 15, verse 6, says, And he, Abraham, called Abraham at the time, but Abraham believed God. Okay, the faith we're talking about. That belief, the faith, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham believed God, what he said, in the type of faith, commitment, and trust Again, he didn't do anything, but he believed, and he got righteousness, okay? Now notice, 15, chapter 15 comes before chapter 22, okay? Now in chapter 22, which comes after this, we see the other example that James is telling us about. We have Abraham, and God says to Abraham, I want you to go, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me, okay? And Abraham chooses to obey God, and we see in verses 9 through 12, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing, we see in action, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Genesis 15 happens first. What happens there? Abraham believes in God with not a mental assent, a type of faith, trust, and commitment. And God says, you got righteousness. Well, then in verse 22, chapter 22, we see what happened we see that demonstrated. Abraham wasn't saved in chapter 22. He'd already been given righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. But in 22, we're able to see the results of that. It's demonstrated for us that the faith is actually there. God gives us another example. James gives us another example here. In verse 24, flip your page back over, and we're going to talk about this other person, same order, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Okay, this story, flip your page back over to the verses in Joshua 2. Joshua, God's leader of the nation of Israel, he sends out some spies to look into the promised land because they're going to go take it over because this is the land that God has promised them. Well, these spies, excuse me, go to to Rahab's house, and the king hears that these guys are here coming to take over their land. Well, of course the king wants them. Comes to Rahab and says, hey, give me those guys that are coming to spy us out and take the land. Rahab says, Rahab doesn't give them up. You can go read the whole story later. She hides them. They make a deal that when they come in to take the land, that they are not going to kill Rahab and her family. They come up with how that will be known, and they leave and sneak out, and she helps them get away. Now, as James saying, that's what saved her. Well, I want you to hear what Rahab said about why she did that. 
Why was she helping them? Verse 9 of Joshua chapter 2. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and how and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our heart melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Okay, listen to what she says. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She did this action. Why? She believed in who God was. It was her faith that gave her righteousness, and that faith was demonstrated in her actions later. So what James is trying to do is make a distinction between a type of mental assent that intellectually acknowledges some right facts about God, which the demons have, that is very different from the faith that is committed and trusted to Christ. Now, he's not saying that any of us will ever be perfect. That's not what he is saying. Nor is he saying that genuine believers can't go through a time of significant disobedience. That is absolutely in the scriptures as well, and I am not saying that. But what I am saying James says is that a genuine life, a genuine faith, is going to produce a changed life. So the questions that I have for us are this. How do your life and actions demonstrate your faith or lack thereof? How does your life look different since you became a Christian? Not perfect, but different. And the spiritual response. Maybe... uh, You read that and thought, oh my goodness, I have the mental assent, but I've never had that trust, commitment, love, get a new heart kind of thing. It's totally by faith. Sitting right where you are right now, you can choose to believe and trust that and walk out the door as righteous as any of the rest of us who've done that. Praise Jesus for that gift. If you say, I've got that faith and trust, How do I respond? Well, we need to work on living a changed life, and we need to act like we believe. Again, great stuff, hard stuff. I totally know that. It's a spiritual checkup. You go home, spend some time with the Lord, and remember, his heart behind it is to give you freedom, to give you joy, to help you live out the answers to these questions. As I was um, studying through this, obviously pretty overwhelmed with my own sin, There were two things that were so meaningful for me. First is this. I am totally mesmerized at the perfection of Christ that for 33 years he never treated one person with any partiality. Is that not the most amazing thing? Every person, every interaction, no distinction. Man, his perfections to me are so Fabulous! I just loved thinking about and was so mesmerized by the perfections of Christ as I think about going five minutes without my heart sizing someone out, even if I didn't act on it. So mesmerized that for his whole life, never treated one, one person with any distinction. Man, I just think he's so awesome. Second thing is, just as God is merciful enough to show us our own sin, it's just... And I'm sure this is the understatement of the year. 
So grateful we're saved by grace. If it was at all, in any way, shape, or form, dependent for 30 seconds on me, man, I would be in big trouble. To have a God who said, Kath, I know you can't do anything. I'm going to do it all. Praise God for that. So praise God for that. Pray with me. Jesus, you are beyond my imaginations that you fully kept every ounce of the law. You didn't transgress one part of it or you'd have broken all of it. Not one moment of partiality. You are so mesmerizing to me. And the fact that you would come in your glory and in your perfection to die for me, I'm so grateful, so amazed that you would do that. And I acknowledge that there is not one other way I could have had righteousness unless you did it all. So to say thank you is such an understatement. Father, on behalf of all of us, I want to I wanna ask for forgiveness because none of us in the room treats wealth as we should. None of us treats people purely out of love and not out of partiality. Not one of us fully lives consistent with what we believe. And I just ask for forgiveness and thanks that you give it. God, I know that... Um, I know that even though we learned this today, none of us is going to give it perfect tomorrow. But I pray you would, in your kindness, with each one of us, point out that area or two or person or two that you'd like for us to work on this week. God, we're not going to get it perfect. And, and you know, you already know that. But each of us would like to just take a step in that direction. Thanks so much for the truth. It is indeed the truth that sets us free. Man, thanks for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for being here tonight. We'll be back next week for um, our fourth week in the book of James and talk about some really significant stuff about the heart. Um, If you have your Bibles and haven't left them, please leave them at the table outside. And if someone at each table would gather all those things at your table and bring them over and put them there, it would save our cleanup team a lot of time. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.